This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Today's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Uh, we are going to focus primarily on you guys. Frankly, we're going to be doing some Tulune May concerns. Obviously, that is a bit of a fan favorite segment. Um, yeah, it's been a week. Yeah, where everybody is like having lots of feelings. I know there's been a thing going around with editors and agents about how they're overworked and how they're overwhelmed and kind of the trauma of the last year. Wimbledon is happening, so it's Eric is very feeling very. <laughs> Um, I just had family in town that just left, so I was kind of thinking it would be, like, a good episode to just, like, have feelings and to be reassured. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of what we're going to do today. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a reminder, everything that we're going to be reading here and kind of talking about are submissions by listeners just like you. (coughs) Um, These are questions that were sent to us, and well... We'll be reading them anonymously. You can also send them to us anonymously at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, in addition, we also have a bunch more kind of specifically writer-focused questions like this um, that perhaps go into a little bit more depth over on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Right now, we've got, you know, if you sign up, you've got access to all of our literal years of content. Mm-hmm. In addition... Uh, you've got access to Bookbird Summer, which is kind of just like more of what we're going to be doing today, but specifically cultivating like vibes, v- like good vibes, like our love of reading. Um, we're going to be posting some things by us, some things by fellow writers or listeners. Um, and we're also going to be launching our book club. So that we at the time of this recording, we have about a day left before we decide our final book. Um, you can head over to Patreon or to Twitter to make your choice known. Mm-hmm. Um, we're choosing between three. So that's super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, kind of before we dive in, I did just want to point out something that we definitely wanted to talk about on this episode today, but the document itself does a really, really good job of analyzing and having jumping off points that we can't really add anything. Um, (laughs) So there is just published the Workplace Racism Survey um, from POC in publishing and uh, Latinx in publishing, which are two like grassroots organizations. Um, and it's worth reading if you work in publishing. It's worth reading if you are a writer in publishing. It is also worth reading if you are just like somebody who works in with a corporation at all. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we just want to kind of like use our platform to uh, push all of you to read that and reflect on it and look into the resources that they've very generously provided for you in this, in a, like a super well-designed yeah. PDF. Um, okay, on that note, all right. Why don't we just Let's like do it. go in and start reading the questions? Fire it up. Why don't you go first? Okay. <laughs> I'll go first. Dear Laura and Eric, I'm an aspiring historical romance writer in a pickle. My novel is definitely historical romance, completely centered around a love story, witty banter, 
H-E-A, the whole nine yards. But it doesn't fit the genre bounds, which has me nervous about potential publication, and I'm only interested in traditional publishing. Okay, so this note specifically, you don't have to read, but it was a very long email, and it goes to explain why it doesn't fit the the bounds of this particular genre in addition like so the book is set in 1946 it's it's in first person present tense and there is like more assault than is often in romance novels sure um so i think there's kind of like two ways to take this question uh number one <laughs> one of the reasons that i cut off most of the 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 email because most of it is like justifying why this isn't historical romance um is the line right here <laughs> uh my novel is definitely historical romance but it doesn't fit the genre bounds so there's our contradiction right right which means that it's not historical romance well right? so let's let's unpack that for a minute and i'm specifically interested in your thoughts because you work in a lot of genre fiction. Yes. You've done very well in genre fiction. Like, because nothing, I mean, I guess not nothing, but like anytime you have a project, mm -hmm. it's going to have different points of emphasis. It's going to have different things that make it very quintessentially within a genre, but then also it's going to have different traits that maybe make it surprising within that genre or make it something that could perhaps cross over to something else or whatever. Like, no two books are completely cookie cutter within, you know, any category, right? And so, like, how, you know, this person is clearly struggling with this question, too. Like, how do you think about your projects when it's time to decide, one, like, what something is, mm -hmm. and two, what to do when it's either not a clean fit or... Like, it could theoretically be two things, or you, I don't know, like, you see what I'm asking. Like, what do you do about something like yeah, this? Yeah, so I think the important thing is to really, like, understand what are the actual boundaries of the genre. Sure. And what are conventions. Okay, so if we're talking about historical romance in this, like, when you have genre fiction, which is, like... Romance, thrillers, mysteries, basically, okay? Um, that you have heavy reliance on tropes. They have to end a certain way. Like in a mystery, the mystery's always solved. In a romance, the couple always ends up together. You know what I mean? So those are unbreakables. And the author in here has gotten a lot of that right. So a love story, check. Mm -hmm. Happy ever after, check. Mm -hmm. Witty banter is a convention. What, hold on one second. Is that what H-E-A means? Yeah, happily ever oh, after. I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's helpful. Okay, got yeah. it. Or you can have happily, like happy for now, H-F-N. So <laughs> I'm learning so much. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those are like the only necessary convention. And you have to have some tropes in there too. Yeah. Um, the witty banter is a like common occurrence, not required. Um, the other things that were mentioned, I know the author's a little bit worried that this is set in 1946 um, and that, you know, most historical fiction is either like Georgian or Victorian or in the 20s or whatever. Well, it's in history and it's a, and you say it's a romance. So, like, it counts, like just because it's outside of like the big subgenres of historical fiction, yeah. like that is not an actual boundary. Sure. Same with POV. You know, we did a big thing last week about or maybe not last week, a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That's on Patreon. We did a mm -hmm. whole like 20 minutes on 
POV and tenses and about how like yeah. you're worried that like your book requires a certain tense and that's not actually true. Um, like you're like the genre doesn't really matter. Like the story will dictate what the tense and the and the um, what the what the tense and the POV should be. And like that's the right answer. And so like right. having a a historical novel in first person present tense like that is maybe flouting convention a little bit mm -hmm. but it's not messing with the boundaries mm -hmm. okay um and so like you know when i first read this email my first thought is will you say that it doesn't fit the genre bounds so then it's not actually historical romance is probably histor a historical novel with romance in it but it sounds like the actual necessary things that it needs, happily ever after, like love story being central to the story, et cetera, like those things are there. It's just a little bit different in other ways. Um, the really kind of big sticking point is there's a couple, uh, the author mentioned a couple of different like assaults, yeah. particularly like sexual assaults yeah. in um, yeah. about the book. And like, that's pretty hard because like, what is definitely not sexy is like sexual assault. Um, right. <laughs> so right. like that's going to be something that will definitely be like a sticking point. But that's kind of like without having read the book and without frankly like knowing what the book is about and like what happens in it. I can't give like super strong advice there. But I think what we can do mm -hmm. is perhaps expand this discussion a little bit just so we talked about the the actual boundaries versus the conventions here um, it is worth noting that the boundaries are the strictest in genre fiction once you get to like commercial fiction or like even like women's fiction or children's in a certain way like those get real slippery real fast yeah I mean so I guess like the question you know, at the heart of this is like a certain amount of anxiety around whether or not because of external criteria, their book is even like publishable right. or and so like, how do we balance that anxiety? You know, like, what do we tell someone who maybe has the sense that their, you know, their work might be, you know, that clearly there's someone who, to some extent is aware of the conventions and things that they're, you know, writing within or writing outside of, you know, or trying to kind of fit in relation to. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I think for me, the key to something like this is really being, one, which it sounds like you're well on your way to doing, which is, like, being aware of what the conventions mm -hmm. and the boundaries are and, like, being able to talk and position your book in a way that shows how it fits and how it subverts or de defies those certain mm -hmm. categories. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just seems like to me your answer is being able to speak clearly and eloquently about how your book exists in relation to the category yeah. that you're most mindful of here, you know? And and like reader, I think I think there's there's an element which we see all the time of people like self-selecting them out. Right. Um of of having an opportunity, you know what I mean? Like there's the well, the biggest best-selling historical romances that I'm seeing are just of these like three different 10 year periods right and it's and it's like the success of those particular periods 
of time, like that doesn't really have anything to do with the potential success of a book that's set outside of that. Like readers who want to read Regency romance will read Regency romance and readers who are interested in reading something outside of Regency romance will read something outside of Regency romance. And like, I think there's maybe a worry here that like, just because there's this subgenre that you're seeing and it's really big that you have to like be a part of that subgenre. And it's not true because like there there are enough Regency romances to for have to have a person only read those for the rest of their life. <laughs> this is not your audience. Well, remember right? too, like, like any and this is a whole separate conversation, but just like quickly, remember that trends you're seeing in published books are years ahead or behind or however you, you want to think of it. As what's in submission piles, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. those books were acquired a long time ago yeah. and are now appearing. And so, like, don't ever don't chase trends in that way is always yeah. my advice. But just I don't know. I would never. I think the key point you made earlier was like, don't self-select out of things. Yeah. You know, and like you know, you can even again with the like convention versus actual rules, right? Think about like why people enjoy Regency romance. It's not because they really like are obsessed with the time period necessarily. It's because of the particular like microcosm of media that we've been given before, like Jane Austen. And then also the kind of the particular like social and like romantic etiquette that we have to like play with and deal with. Right. And like all of that can be other places. Like, it's, you know, like, sure, everybody wants to see Colin Firth, like, go into a lake. But, like, Eric has no idea what that reference means. But a lot of what you is, who... Well, <laughs> what is the reference mean? Okay, so in the Pride and Prejudice miniseries uh-huh. from, I believe, 1997, not the 2004 one with Kira Knightley. Uh-huh. Um I might have <laughs> gotten is, those. I feel like a listener. This is the most informative yeah. episode of. Prayer I might have gotten those of. years totally yeah. wrong. So okay. like, don't write in and tell me so that break. I'm totally wrong because I, yeah. But so anyway, um, there is a scene that was not in. So the reason that there are so many like Jane Austen interpretations. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, like it's fun because like Jane Austen like wrote romances. But they were really like class critiques, right? Um, but she was able to do it because they were like, whatever. Right. But her style of writing specifically translates incredibly well to film and television to the point where like screenwriters will just like copy the dialogue right. onto the page and just right. like they they like it's easy, right? <laughs> so that's why it was a big deal. Why in the Colin Firth miniseries? Uh-huh. They added in a scene where he's being very angsty as Mr. Darcy. Right. And he's, like, wearing the pants and, like, the loose, like, the tight, like, beige pants and the loose white Mm -hmm. shirt. And he, like, goes into the lake and then he comes out and he's all wet. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. He decides to have Bookbird Summer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I can see why that... That probably opens and closes the book on all Jane Austen adaptations, I figure. I yeah. mean, if Colin Firth's getting in the lake. Well, um, but then you have to compare that with mm-hmm. the... All the time um, she doesn't get in the well, lake. Well, no, 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 no. The Keira Knightley version with the hand release after Darcy puts... We're getting... Okay. But, like, puts her into the carriage and then he, like, flexes his hand because he, like, touched uh, her and it's, like, a big deal. Because he's so angsty. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so anyway, <laughs> really good. <laughs> you can have those types of moments outside of like specifically the time period. And I know that there. I know for a fact because like I I do this for my job. Like there are so many editors who work in romance right now who like are desperate for something out of like the Regency or Victorian time periods. So yeah. yeah. So don't self select out. Great. All right. Next um, one. I feel like. You have you ever like read a Jane Austen book or like yeah, seen? I've read a bunch of Jane Austen. But have you like seen? I've never watched anything Jane Austen though. <sighs> okay. What I gotta watch something now? I kind of figure you know I so I like Jane Austen. I read you know I've read some of the books. Um, There's only six of them, well, but yeah. And I think that you know I mean you know as you kind of saying like class critique all these kinds of things like I find her, you know I'm glad to have read Jane Austen. She's great. I'm not sure. That I need to like start binging like miniseries, you know. But maybe that's just me. I, d- I didn't know Colin Firth was getting in a lake. That would change things. It would change yeah. things. It should change things, yeah. quite honestly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, homework for me then. <laughs> Everybody write in whether Eric should start with the miniseries or the film adaptation. Should we do something like this? Like That would be do... really fun. <laughs> okay. That would be or, fun. Put a bookmark in that. We're coming back to this. Anyway, <laughs> uh, read to me the next question, okay. Laura. Um, so for a little bit of context, um, so if you have listened to our last week's episode... Uh, great, you're going to be basically caught up. If you haven't, uh, you might be interested in that conversation. But basically, we had a, a big, long conversation about how um, how people, like particularly in editorial, but kind of all over in traditional publishing, um, how they are functionally irreplaceable, but are treated like they are replaceable. Right. And we kind of talked about what might happen, a little bit of a thought experiment. We talked about what might happen if they were actually like treated like how they actually are, which is that they're irreplaceable, like the individuals are irreplaceable. And um, we talked a little bit about the overwork. And Eric's talked about that there is kind of this overall feeling a lot of the times where it's just like, we just are you're you're so overburdened like you don't want to like deal with the author they're feeling like the 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 actual like ert part is getting in the way because there's yeah. not like time for that so right. we had somebody write in and was feeling like really bad about that about how like you know they're an author trying to get in to right. the business and like hearing that the editors are just like oh i don't want to hear from this person like that felt really bad um, and so the question that comes out of that is, to loon it may concern, once an author has received a publishing contract, what is considered like the proper etiquette to ensure that you are both engaged in the artistic side of the publishing process with your, ed- with your editorial team and keeping things moving through like the publishing, mo- publishing money-making yep. machine? Yep. So like how can you, as a writer, be like, a good yeah. corporate shill, <laughs> basically. Well, so I think that might even be a little reductive. I mean, what yeah. I was trying to say, like last week with that, it's not that <laughs> it's not that everyone who works in publishing hates authors. Obviously, that is the it's the opposite of true. We're all here because 
we love this stuff. But and we like, want to help authors. It's just, I mean, yeah. it's like any job, right? Like any job that has any sort of client involved, sometimes the people get tired of the clients. You know what I mean? Like that's just how that's how that's the nature of work. Yeah. You know, and so like, and I think a part of that it, is that like there are specifics built into the contract. Yeah. About like what an author has input over, what yeah. an author can right. has approval over. Like this is like so the question about like what is the proper etiquette to ensure that you're engaged in the artistic side and like behaving well as an author, like that has already been decided for you. Well it's so it's been you're right that parameters get outlined in the uh you know, in the contract for things like this. So that some of the friction that we are maybe thinking about does get reduced. But I think the question is a good one, which is like acknowledging that we're all just trying to do our jobs here, including the author, by the way. And I have no, like, <laughs> you should hear what authors have to say about, uh, you know, the people they work with in house. I mean, like, there's, you know, it's work, right? Like, people, it's a working relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And so, how do we make this working relationship as positive as possible, as understanding art, that as art focused as possible too? Yeah. You know, like because obviously, like the big tension here is like we're trying to do something that's kind of businessy, but also acknowledging that the center of it is like a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And so, I think for me, like thinking about the many, the vast majority nearly all of the authors that I've worked with who are really great and have, you know, I've had a great relationship with and whom, you know, maybe I represent and have had really great experiences with their editors. Like the, the thing that really, um, really sets those people apart to me is being engaged, but being like flexible, right? Yeah. Like one thing I, you know, really encourage any writer I have who's talking to an editor maybe for the first time or, you know, is in the process and has some questions about things is to ask those questions, to come prepared to any conversation they're having with, you know, whichever part of the machine it is, it's an editor, a publicist, whoever, like come prepared with your questions, but also be prepared to listen to what the other person has to say. Like, I mean, it's like anything, like... The key is to take your expertise and combine it with this other person so that with you're getting a different the, expertise. So that you're getting the best results, right? Yeah. And like so what happens a lot of the time is, you know, an author maybe they've done it maybe they have they do come prepared, right? And they come with an exact idea of what they want their cover to look like or anything like that. And then they get a cover that sales and marketing gets a hold of it, and it's nothing like what right, you, you know expected. What I mean? Like s- friction shows up, you know. They inevitably get a cover that doesn't look like they were envisioning, and they, you know, somebody on some side shuts down, right? And it's like, okay, the answer here is to be not to not say anything, not to just be a rubber stamp on your stuff. No one's asking you to do that. I don't even think that's preferable. Um, an engaged, like to be the. First thing about any of this, like the way to be a good author in terms of like professional behavior toward the publishing team you're working with is just being engaged and responsive. You know what I mean? Like that. And that's like being part of any collaboration team. You know, it's like and maybe you'll have disagreements and you should feel comfortable having those disagreements and your agent should help you have. That's why that's like part of why you have an agent to help you navigate those disagreements. Yeah. And like. But then, you know, also when someone shares, you know, someone on the other end says, hey, here's this thing we're thinking that's different than what you've got, 
you know, being willing, not necessarily to just say yes to whatever they say, but like really seeing what they're saying, you know, trying to understand that, you know, they are also trying to produce like incentives are aligned at this stage, Mm -hmm. right? You know, like everyone wants the same thing. They all want your book to sell. And so as people think about how to figure that out, like everyone's going to be doing what they can to make that happen. And so sometimes, like truthfully, Sometimes the art director knows more about art direction than the writer. You know what I mean? That like, can't possibly be true, Eric. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, that isn't to say you should like bow down to and not express opinions to someone in-house who's like telling you something. But it is worth always taking seriously what people tell you and also developing you know, a back and forth that assures that they take seriously what you're telling them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like It's just building up. Like the way to it's about trust and it's the way to build that trust is just to be engaging. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like the problems I've had, like when I think and I'm thinking specifically now of like being an editorial assistant, which is sort of like personally, I think it's the spot in the chain that catches the most brunt of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, most like of the conflict. Most of the conflict. And it's usually fairly because an editorial assistant didn't acquire that book, right? Their job is to help out the editor who did acquire it. But they're also, like, usually the, like, you'll find this, too. And I will tell you, as an author, here's another tip. Be really nice to the editorial assistant. Um, Everybody should, like, editorial assistants should be your favorite person. They should be. I'm talking to writers and I'm talking to agents. Just purely cynically because that's the person who's actually doing the things <laughs> no, truthfully, like if you want your cover to get fought for, if you want a certain thing to appear in your like, that's your person more even than the editor, because the person who's going to be doing all the back and forth with the production department, who's going to be sending the endless nitty gritty emails back and forth with whoever it's an assistant. And so that's the person you really want to make sure you're feeling good with. And so like, but they get put in a tough spot a lot of the time because there can be certain authors who don't treat that person very well. Or as soon as there's like a disagreement or something doesn't happen the way the author wants, they pull rank on them. And suddenly, like the biggest pet peeve I always had, and this is a very common pattern, is author would ask for something completely outlandish compared to, you know, our process, what we had talked about, whatever it is. I would explain that in an email. And then 20 minutes later, I would get a call from my boss saying, hey, this author just sent me this angry email saying that all this stuff was going wrong. And you can tell what happened is the person didn't like the answer I gave them, so they went above my head and basically said I was doing a bad job to the person I who supervises me, you know what I mean? And it's like, so that kind of thing, it, and that happens, that, is, that happens to me as an assistant a lot. It happens to every assistant. That's just something that happens. But like, it's, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. Like, and I guess, like, what I'm saying is, like, we could list endless, and I, obviously, I could sit here and we could do a whole episode out of things that publishing houses do toward authors that piss me off too. But like, the point is, apart from listing off any possibly bad scenario, the point is to just show up engaged, show up ready to listen too, and show up with the understanding that everyone is trying to get the same thing, and that. You know, like, and getting to a place, especially in those early conversations where you can come to trust what someone is saying. And if you don't feel like you are, like, hey, maybe this editor is seeing something. Like, 
so for instance, I had a conversation, and I realize I'm talking a lot here, but I had a conversation the other day with an author of mine. We're um, we're on sub right now. Uh, the book is getting some interest. We are closing in on you know offer stage at a you know on in certain ways, all this kind of stuff. And I had a call with the author, and they basically said. Um, they came to the call with really, really specific questions, specific questions like more than I was expecting. You know, they were like, <laughs> well, is the editor seeing this? Is the editor seeing this? Is the editor seeing this? All really, really good stuff that I was really glad to hear. And it made me like it made my job or it's, or it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to make my job of deciding whether or not this place in this editor is the right fit for this client way easier because I know very clearly what their priorities are. I know very clearly what it is they're valuing in a house and what they are going to be wondering about this specific house with regard to their work. Like, and like that sort of clarity, like having your priorities lined up and knowing how to ask for like, or in talking with your agent about how to ask for what it is that you really care about. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I, that's, it's really helpful and it's really, and apart from that, it's really professional. Like, Taking your job as someone who is being a part of making something that at that stage isn't wholly yours. You know what I mean? Like the book is the manuscript and the copyright and all that stuff, that's yours. The book is everybody's. You know what I yeah. mean? Like that's, and you're part of a cooperative team. And so being ready to compromise, being ready to cooperate, all that kind of stuff is really important. And even just purely cynically, that's how you're going to get what you want more of the time anyway. <laughs> like, Trust me, be nice to the assistant level people because yeah. they're the ones who can help you. And if you treat them like they are not the person you really respect, then you're going to get that back. And you do not want that. You know. So all of this is very good. Uh, good advice, Eric. There is also, I think, something that I've come to believe more and more and more, which is that if you are a writer who has you know worked with a critique partner or a writing group and with your agent to refine and you've received like good editorial feedback on your manuscript you already have the skills to succeed in this particular industry yeah. and let me explain why the best thing that you can do like singularly as a writer when you receive feedback that you don't agree with is to explore that feedback. So you like you have to identify why you don't agree with it. You talk to the person that did that gave you the critique and say, "Well, I feel like this is taking it in the wrong direction." And a lot of the time, the feedback that that particular person gave um they're working towards a different end than you or rather they're trying to solve a different problem than you uh, think that they're trying to solve. Yeah. So if you know you cut a like if somebody recommends that you cut a subplot out of the book, it's not necessarily because they didn't like the subplot or that the subplot wasn't working, but because they want it. They want maybe they want to give more space to this other thing. And you do or, have a right to know why. And yeah. and sp but specifically, I'm saying like approaching that as understanding why and kind of trying to and then once you both are understanding where you're coming from and where not it's not even like a miscommunication it's kind of just because like a book is such a big nuanced thing that one change can have a thousand reasons right um but once you both understand that 
a lot of the times you can problem solve together right. or or something that you didn't initially agree with then you do agree with because you understand the reasoning behind it or and you understand how that works mechanically or something like that that exact same thing is like how you should approach every part of the like production process of your book if you don't like so this is this is a real example that i've been dealing with in the past couple of weeks um we got a cover great uh Cover's fine, not thrilled about it, but there's a specific color featured on the cover that we're not a fan of, right? Okay. Not mm. a fan of it, sure. told the editor. The editor sure. is like, actually, like the sales department wants it because of X, Y, Z. They asked for it specifically. Sure. And so when it becomes not an artistic reason that that color is there, but becomes like yeah. a sales or marketing reason that the color is there, it's fine now. Like, yep. I get it. Like, I get the reason why. And so it's OK. And so like that kind of conversation and understanding because there's so much nuance in all of this. Right. Like that. If you have the skill to do that with your writing, bring that thought and that that thought process and that that like attitude into the rest of it. And yep. you'll be just fine. Yeah. No, I think that's true. All right. Let You're me right. read you the next one. Please do. Hi, Eric and Laura. I have a question, and I'll trust uh, trust you with answering how you see best, whether it be discourse here or whatever. Basically, like you can put it with this wherever you want on Patreon or the main <laughs> episode. Guess what? It's in the main episode. I recently, August 2020, soft launched a small press, which will debut its first project, an anthology by the writing community, this September. A close editor friend of mine partnered with me on it, and we dropped a fair bit of money into the press to assure, ensure that we are doing our best in the system, in our systems and product. So far, this money has come from our own pockets via our, our individual editorial freelancing businesses. My partner has mentioned a few times that we should think about ways to raise funds outside of creating content since we are already working overtime to run the press. We're soon launching merch and trying to decide if we have the time to devote to a Patreon, but I don't know where we, where we will fit it into our schedule. So my question is, are there ethical ways to crowdfund that wouldn't take advantage of the very people we're trying to serve? I've always felt that choosing to open a press makes it my responsibility to make it exceed, succeed, not everyone else's. As more and more money is needed for our future, I'm forced to wonder if I'm being stubborn or if there really is a way to raise money honestly. I appreciate your time and expertise. So... Um, that's a huge question, yeah. right? How do you, basically like you could almost read this question as like how do you start a small press? Yeah, which is like <laughs> that's like <laughs> the it, that's enormous, right? Like that's like a, the biggest fundamental question in publishing almost right now. And it's like I want to, so I don't necessarily have like a fast answer ready to go about like the best way to do that. I know offhand that like other small presses do things like apply for grants. You know, they do things, yep. you know, they, they get money like that, right? But one thing I do want to talk about because you do seem very, and this is great, you seem very concerned with ethics and things like that. And that is just like whatever you decide to do, really make sure of, you know, one key principle. And that is that money flows toward the author. Right. And what that means is like the people who should be paying to keep you afloat, not the writers, should not be at any point. It shouldn't be your writers. There shouldn't be submission fees. There shouldn't you shouldn't ask your writers to pitch in on production costs unless it's very clear that this is a partner publishing agreement. Not. It sounds like you're just like I'm treating this question as though you're launching a traditional small press. Right. Which it sounds like you are. Right. So but, you know, if you're doing something else, that's one thing. But like. 
the writers should not be paying for this. Like, if you want to do things like sell merch or something, like, that's all, you know, that's all fine and good and everything. But, like, I would just be, like, the temptation in something like this is to start getting the artists to chip in. And that is, I think, something that needs to be pushed back against. I think it's a bad trend in um, any... Not ethical. It's not. <laughs> I, it's not. I mean, I, I think that... And, I'm not, and I know that you're not doing this, which is why you're asking this very good question. I mean, this is a, you know, I don't think that you are someone who wants to do that or you would just do it instead of asking us, you know? And, like, I just think, like, a lot of the time something that happens, and I see it, like, especially on, like, pitch event days... You know, like online, like Pitmat or things like that. There's always like a few, like scammy presses in the replies that are like, "Hey, we'll publish with you. You just gotta like front this much or whatever it is." You know, and it's like, that's don't do that. Like, do not take from writers to run your operation. Like, it should be the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, it's so. I mean, I guess like, what I would do if I were you is figure out what. Like, surely in your head there's some press that made you want to do this, right? You know, like, I know, for instance, I mean, it's not a, even close to a perfect parallel, but, like, Laura, you and I launched an agency, you know what I mean? Yep. Like, we we have done a version of this, and one thing that you and I did was, like, think very carefully about, okay, which places do we admire and what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And how can we do something, you know, how can we take from that and put our own spin on it? And use that as a model for our own success while also still being, you know, ethical and true to what we want to do, right? And, like, I just think probably – this is honestly – it's a lot like pitching a book, right? Like, find your comps. And I don't know – I mean, like, for me, you know, indie presses, you know, you think of somewhere like, you know, a Grey Wolf or a Counterpoint or a Coffee House or these places. Like, someone out there is doing what you're doing in a cool way. Figure out what their model is, you know, ask them questions, you know, do that kind of like that's the kind of legwork I would be doing. But like, I don't know that there is a fast, quick answer to funding a small press. You know, I mean, that's difficult work. It's the work. Like, it's I don't know. What do you think? I I think you're totally right. And I I think my take on this is going back to the, the text of the question, which is, you know, my partners mentioned a few times that we should think about ways to raise funds outside of creating content. And then, so merch, great one. We've got Bookbird Summer t-shirts. You can get them if you want, um, which we don't actually make that much money on. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, yeah. we just wanted to have cool t-shirts. Eric is wearing his today. That's right, baby. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a Patreon, but, like, Patreon is creating content. Like Yeah, for what? You yeah. Know, like, like, the press can't really be the content. Like, I don't know. It's, yeah, so, like, if, okay, so if we talk about, like, what... So if if your press, if all you have time to do is create the content that your press puts out in sales, like the anthologies or the, you know, whatever types of books that you're going to end up doing, um, like Patreon seems to like not be a good option for that yeah. because, you know, and there are, I think Eric was spot on with grants, but if we're kind of talking about specifically like a cash flow issue, right? Which is kind of always the problem. Like, yes, the money is the issue, like the amount of money that we have. But more than that, just because like 
publishing is hard to do without like a really like fluid um, yeah. amount of cash. Uh, I think like the easy answer is like how do we raise money for this press while not taking advantage of people? The answer is pre-sales. Like, and the reason for that is because what you're doing is you're charging more for the book than it took to produce the book, theoretically, right? Because you want to like pay yourself back over, you know, and whatever your um whatever your uh PL looks like, like that's kind of up to you. But um that's how to to get more money in. And the cool thing about like pre-sales, however you want to do them, is that it creates buzz for your book. It create it like helps you figure out how many copies you want to print, how you want to distribute it. Like it kind of helps you with all of these things. Um, and so like this this might be this might feel like really reductive and ridiculous, but like the best way to make money for your press is to like sell what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, um, like, that, <laughs> but no, you don't that, have to do it like when your book is out, right? I was gonna get there too, which is basically like you know, you have a title coming out or something and like make it about that, right? Like sell the book. Yeah. Like I mean part of publishing I mean you I mean this is a topic that we could do a year of episode. Like on truthfully this is huge, you know, but like I think I would really focus on, you know, it sounds like you've got a title coming out, like put what you've got into that, make that like one book, then the next book, then the next book, you know. I mean that's what you know, that's how we yeah. treat our agenting, yeah. you know, and it's like if it's, you're not interested in creating extra content with a Patreon, if all you want to do is do the work of the press, then the only answer to your question is to do the work of the press. Yeah. And that involves like selling the book. Like that's how to do it. And, you know, there are cool things you can do where if you know that a a a book that you want to do probably isn't going to make their money back or, you know, is really important and Etc. Like, or even if it is going to make its money back, like grants, man. Yeah, that's cool. Right for the next one. I am. Okay, here we go. Dear androgynous loon, please indulge a mini personal narrative as context for my question. I was born female and still identify with that as my gender. For all of my conscious existence, I have been told I exhibit boyish proclivities in my hobbies, communication style, dress preferences, etc. I first became aware of this during my fifth grade year when I would behave in a way that was surely hilarious and now in line with my male peers, but I was dealt a heavier hand of discipline than them. Now, as I write books for children, middle grade and picture books, I'm being told I have a manly style, whatever that means, and recently a publishing professional suggested my first page might be too assertive or complex. Has anyone ever said that to Neil Gaiman? Accordingly, my question is twofold. Do you have submission strategy suggestions for a, quote, masculine female, such as myself, initials, pen name? And then part two, if you were to fall in love with a manuscript from your slush pile and later discovered the author was not the gender they first represented in querying, how would that sit with you? Please help out a poor, just-wanting-to-be-me author. Okay. So, I have many thoughts about this. Yeah, me too. Um, I think... The first thing is just like before we before we jump into this specific author's questions, um, I will say that I have literally never, not once, like thought about the gender of the author who is submitting yeah. a book to me yeah. unless they like talk about it. Um, you but know, like if is... they put in their bio, they're like, you know, like I'm. 
yeah. trans yeah. At, in whatever yeah. then I'm like okay they're trans but like I I don't even look at the names I'm just like get to the book get to the book <laughs> um I think there there's like this specific worry that is particularly present um with like cis women about that right like either like there's a split here they either write like children's fiction or they write like really really high literary stuff there's this idea that they won't be as successful you know that's the reason jk rowling used jk rowling but like that was also in 1994 Mm -hmm. right um when that book was like querying um and you know you can look to people like oh they're using initials or whatever and like it could be because they want to be presented as gender neutral, but it also could be because like they're an academic and they publish like like N.K. Jemison like publishes their academic stuff as Nora Jemison, and so when they wrote like when she wrote fiction, she's like I'm gonna be N.K. Jemison because like that's different, right? Um, and I don't want those like two sides to meet, and yeah. that anxiety like doesn't about like that I need to be a male to succeed in writing like doesn't actually match the spread of what authors actually look like and like yeah all, like there are more like women identifying people who get published especially in children's literature just because like more of them write yeah. and so like that's not it's like I feel like it's not a thing like maybe to like some super old tiny person who just is like decided that they don't like books by women or whatever but like I feel like it's not a thing so here's just what I think <laughs> this is what I think because I am in agreement with you that I think maybe the framing like if this person were my client and they were asking me these things my answer well first of all as you said to part two of the question which is like what if you found out a manuscript you really liked was written by someone whose gender was not what you thought it was uh, just it would never that would never matter like to I mean and that is not to underlie the question like the the like you're asking what's happened like I've had that happen in you know books that I currently rep you know like things like that like that's and it's fine you know what I mean because the point of hopefully whoever you're working with is that that is not you know that you're comfortable at all times and I understand there's like it's very you know it can feel very fraught and difficult and um, to try to like find those those environments, especially in publishing, where like so, I guess like what I want to say is, I think that my advice to you would be like, okay, well, in terms of strategy, like I would do what you're comfortable with. You know, I wouldn't try to bend or try to like hide in a way you didn't want to, or try to bend according to some like toxic standard you think exists. Yeah. Like I, I don't think I would do that. What I would do though is submit in a way you're comfortable and then as things come up if someone it sounds like you've had in you know an encounter that maybe felt a little off to you that maybe was based in certain you know biases or things like that and it's like you know what that you cross that person off you know because yeah like so i don't want to say it's not a thing because i know it's a thing of course there's you know various like biases and bigotries in you know, in publishing and like there are, you know, 
agents who say and do things that are really inappropriate or editors who have thoughts about like we it it exists we understand that it exists individuals but, can be really sexist and like the overall like trend of acquiring yeah. projects per, like but can can be sexist but like in terms of like somebody not acquiring your book because you're a woman but your writing doesn't feel all like like it's wearing a dress like that's yeah. not so much of a thing well it's more that i wouldn't i wouldn't try to play with like i wouldn't try to fit within the bounds you're imagining exist because yeah. you're never going to win that game you know what i mean like it's you're describing a warped standard that shouldn't exist certainly a comment that probably it sounds like shouldn't have been made you know that wasn't really based on anything that you can identify editorially yeah. in your own work like and so like you don't want to change your strategy based on conditions you don't actually want to be a part of or fit within you know mm -hmm. like you just do what's comfortable to you write the things you want to write and just keep your you know, keep your head up looking for people that you think share that vision. And I guess, like, I think what Laura is saying here is, like, there are going to be those people. You know, like, yeah. you're going to find people who, um, you know, who want what you write, who, who don't see your writing in the, like, masculine slash feminine really archaic way of, like, looking at um, how, you know, a page is coming off or whatever, you know. And, like, I guess, so... I don't know. I mean, I, in terms of, like, suggestions, like, I guess, like, so, to me, like, some of your questions just feel a little bit like I would just change the frame on them. And, yeah. like, my question to you would be, like, what are you comfortable with? What yeah. do you want to do? And how can we build a strategy around that? Rather than yeah. saying, hey, you need to conform to this other thing that this one person told you and we need to change. Like, you know, I don't want that because that's not – it's not good for anyone. Like, it's certainly not good for you, and that's what's most important. But it's also probably not good for your work. All right. And that brings us to the end of this particular Tulunisode. Um, I hope we've all had lots of feelings uh, in this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, you know, we can all take some deep breaths. We can all go read our book club book. Um, and we will see you here again next week. Bye.